Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And thus far the reading of God's Word, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Here we are again, the beginning of a new church year, Advent, the four Sundays before the days, the 12 days of Christmas. This is the time where we focus upon past as well as future promises of God regarding His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the best news ever. And therefore, we never grow weary of hearing our story, His story. An Advent is an arrival. It's a coming. When we speak of Advent or the season of Advent, we most often think of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We think of Christmas. Sometimes we might also include what we call the second Advent, by which we mean, of course, the second coming of Christ. But there's more. Jesus came before he was born. He also came after he was resurrected, but before the final resurrection. And over the next four Sundays, we're going to take a look at these four Advents. There is an overarching unity and continuity between the Old and New Testaments. And Christ, of course, is the unifying agent. The history of the cosmos is his history. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. How big is God? Imagine the biggest thing you can imagine. Now multiply that by ten or a hundred or a thousand The triune God is way bigger than that. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And while some of us can say that very fast, we better slow down. That is a mouthful and then some. Infinite and eternal are really big. And any God smaller than that is not the God of Scripture. He's got the whole world. He's got the whole cosmos in his hand along with everything else. He is both transcendent, that is, is he is above and beyond and outside of everything that's created. And he is eminent, that is, he is indwelling the universe and time so that all that he is in his Infinity, he is present with you. 
It's not part of God here and part of God there. He is omnipresent. Now, if this is the case, then the whole story, all of history, all of it is about him. He started history, he controls history, and he will end history. As Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and into him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. This is the theory of everything. In science, that is called the Holy Grail. Any theory that fully explains and links together all known physical phenomena and predicts the outcome of any experiment that could be carried out in principle. In other words, it is true that Jesus is the answer to everything. Therefore, it's essential that we know him. Now, if if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say this, and it's time to say it again. Either this is true or it's false. If he is everything, if he is the creator of everything, if he is who he says he is, then he deserves our 100% allegiance all the time. And if he's not, then let's go home. This is a waste of time. You above all people are to be pitied. It's that stark. It's either everything or it's nothing. And so many want a little bit. They want a slice. They want a little bit of Jesus. They want a little bit of the Bible. That's not what Jesus said. He said it's all or nothing. Otherwise, if we don't know him, we will be cut off from the source of life. We will hear the words from him, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, none of us have any history before the beginning. All created things, all created beings have a beginning. But according to our text in John, Jesus was in the beginning. While Genesis begins the scriptural story at this point of cre- at the point of creation, the New Testament tells us that the story actually began somewhere else. The story of Jesus does not begin in Bethlehem, Nazareth, or even Israel. According to the Bible, it began long before then. It begins in the dateless past, before angels and before Adam's time, therefore, begins with creation, but when we talk about what God was doing before the creation, it is impossible to avoid language that sounds like we are talking about time before time. Nonetheless, we'll use the metaphors because Scripture uses them. The phrases before the foundation of the world and before the world began are used in the New Testament. What happened before God created the world is critical. And it's for that reason that the scriptures are not silent on this matter. In that connection, let's consider the first advent of Jesus, his first coming to earth. And you'll be pleased to discover that it has a great deal of application for your life.
Imagine having the power to speak something into existence. Every molecule, every atom, every quark was made by him and was made for him. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Not only does Jesus have the power to create things by his word out of nothing, that same word perpetually sustains what he made. Again, now Colossians 1, the last part of verse 17 and verse 18, in him all things consist or hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All of this power to create and to sustain is the execution uh, of his providential plan, for he is not only all-powerful, he is all-wise. So before the beginning of the world, he was with God. Jesus taught us that he was present at the very beginning of the story all the way through to its climatic end. Consequently, if you read scripture in a way that doesn't point to Christ, then you're missing the point of the story, and many have missed it. When God wants to communicate... As we pointed out, he does so through his son. In Genesis, God spoke through types and shadows and stories and events that embodied Christ and his work. In Exodus, he revealed Christ through Israel's Exodus and the tabernacle of Moses. In Leviticus, he revealed Christ through the various ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals. In Numbers, he revealed Christ through each of each station of Israel's wilderness journey. In Deuteronomy, he revealed Christ through the commandments and the testimonies. And in the prophetic and historical books, he revealed Christ through the prophetic declarations, the predictions and the actions of the prophets and the kings. In the wisdom literature, he revealed Christ through songs and poems and proverbs. As Jesus would tell his disciples, Right after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he opened up to to them the scriptures, the prophets and Moses and the Psalms and showed them how all of that spoke of him. God's language has not changed. It's simply become more refined. In the past, God spoke about his son. Today, he speaks straight through the mouth of Jesus 
And for this reason, John called Jesus the Logos, the Word, the very utterance of the Word of God. So John tells us that Jesus was right there at the beginning, creating the cosmos, creating the earth, and writing the story. So let's consider some of the highlights in Genesis 1 as they relate to the story of Jesus. You got this? Jesus created the earth. That was his first coming. Before we can grasp the significance of the creation account of the Old Testament, we must turn to the writers of the New Testament. The new in the old is contained. The old by the new is explained. As already cited in Colossians 1.16, Paul is declaring that everything in the visible creation was created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. By the way, that's why when we study things, if we understand this, when we study music or art or anything in science or the physical world or the spiritual world, anything at all, we get to know God. And we enjoy Him. That Thanksgiving dinner you had, He made it. And He made it because He's good. He didn't have to. It was a gift. It's a picture of the goodness of God. John stated the same thing in John 1.3. All things were made through Him. The universe was framed by God's Word, who is Christ. The visible was created by the invisible. And this being the case, all of creation then reflects Jesus in some way. Just as the artist put something of himself into their work, the Lord did the same thing when he crafted the heavens and the earth. How do we know this? Well, he's revealed it in his word. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. When Paul wrote of the eternal power and divine nature of God in Romans 1.20, he was speaking of Christ. For it is in Jesus that, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Consequently, when God created the world, he embedded into the physical universe pictures of his Son. Think about Psalm 19, 1-5. The heavens declare the glory of God, and His firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. So day after day, the heavens and the earth testify of Christ. Jesus is the image of God, the brightness of his glory. In the words of the psalmist, Christ is the knowledge of God, the son, the bridegroom, the champion of the universe. And John began his gospel like Genesis with the words, in the beginning. In John 1 and 2, we are presented with a new creation in the midst of the old creation. For this reason, the Gospel of John is the new Genesis. The language of John 1 and 2 then reminds us of the seven days of creation. In Genesis 1-2, we are told that the earth was formed, formless and void like a wilderness. 
The Hebrew word without form is translated wilderness in other places in the Old Testament. On another day, Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit descended with wings hovering over the waters of creation and on and on it goes. And so I want us to see this morning these parallels between Genesis and the first advent of Jesus and John 1. We don't have time in this one sermon to develop all the parallels between the first advent of Jesus in creation and the second advent of Jesus in his birth in Bethlehem, but let's just consider a few. I'm going to run through these very quickly, but I hope this excites you to see that the Bible, this big book, is one book that God wrote that he gave to us that he reveals himself in. John 1, uh, Genesis 1-2 opens with the state of the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see a picture of chaos and also an image of unregenerate humanity. It perfectly describes humanity without God. Darkness, chaos, fallen man in a wasteland, full of darkness and emptiness, devoid of God's light and life. Isaiah described the wicked as like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. It's only when the Spirit of God hovers over a fallen person that they encounter life. So on Day one of creation, God declared, let there be light. Fiat flux. This is the mantra of regeneration. Here we have new birth. The word of God that brings the impartation of God's life. As Peter writes, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's the description of our birth. So when Jesus was born, the light of the world made its entrance into the cosmos. And the light, John 1, 4 through 9, and the light penetrated the darkness. Following the literary format of Genesis 1, John told us that Christ was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. According to John, Jesus Christ is the true light. So how does the new birth take place? By God's Spirit and by His Word. This is pictured beautifully on the first day of creation when the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters and God commanded light to dispel the darkness by His Word. Paul drew an analogy connecting the day God said, let there be light with our new birth in in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it, is God, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through God's speaking, we are awakened spiritually and our spiritual eyes are opened. As a result, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and translated into the kingdom of light. And we can see the things of the Spirit. The principle of regeneration and new birth is repeated itself in Noah's day. After the floodwaters covered the creation, 
According to Peter, the old world perished underwater in the flood. And the eight souls were saved in the ark. And this was an allusion to the salvation that baptism represents. Just as God's first creation passed away under the flood of Noah's day, so too our old selves passed away when we came into Christ. The burial of the old earth through the flood is a picture of how our old sinful nature, which belonged to the old creation, has been buried through the water of baptism. Do you remember how the dove set foot on the earth only after the flood waters had receded and the new world was then manifested? So too the Holy Spirit will abide only in the new creature in Christ. Similarly, the dove that rested on Jesus at his baptism was a sign that God was heralding a new world with Christ, echoing Genesis. And just as Eve was inside Adam before she appeared, the church was in Christ before the foundation of the world, before she appeared. Just as God put Adam into a deep sleep, Jesus was put into the deepest sleep of all, death. Just as God opened Adam's side to bring forth Eve, the side of our Lord was opened on the cross. Out of it flowed water and blood, the marks of birth. The pierced side of Jesus is the womb from which the bride of Christ was born. The water that poured out from him reminds us of the living waters that poured forth from the rock when Moses struck it in the presence of Israel. The new Eve, the church, the bride of the second Adam, she's part of the new creation. She is that which comes out of Christ, just as Eve came out of Adam. In short, Jesus Christ is the real Adam, and the church, the Lord's counterpart, is the real Eve. Paul called this the mystery which had been hidden from the ages, from generations, but now has been revealed. There are two aspects to this divine mystery. The mystery of God in Christ and the mystery of Christ in the church and the mystery of all mysteries is that Christ and the church are united together in oneness. So back to the garden. Remember, we are considering how the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, came in creation to tell his story. As we read the opening chapters, we see the connection throughout. He came to do something. He is doing it, and he will complete it. Consider how his opening chapter of his story begins in a garden. Can you guess where the story ends? In Genesis 2.15, God commanded Adam to cultivate and keep the garden. The Hebrew word for cultivate is abad, and the Hebrew word for keep is shamar. And these are the same Hebrew words that are used to describe the priest and their care for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a precursor to Solomon's temple. The priests were to cultivate and keep the tabernacle. In addition, we're told that God walked in the garden during the cool of the day. God also walked in the midst of the temple. Same word. And the meaning is clear. The garden was the temple of God. for God. And like the temple, the garden 
was the joining together of God's space and man's space. The intersection of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, which is also where the story will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. The parallels between the Garden of Eden, the temple, and the creation are striking. So let's compare the Garden with the Temple of Israel. The Garden of Eden faced east. The tabernacle and the temple faced east. The Garden was placed on a mountain. The temple was also placed on a mountain. The trees of the Garden were pleasing to the eye, and in like manner, the temple of God is always associated with beauty. Palm trees and pomegranates, lily blossoms, open flowers were engraved in the walls of the temple. These all contained echoes of the garden. The cherubim, which is plural for cherub, were embroidered into the curtains of the tabernacle and the temple, guarding the holy of holies. The cherubim were also placed on either side of the blood-stained mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, guarding it just as they had guarded the Garden of Eden. This is why the Old Testament says that the Lord dwells in the midst of the cherubim. Gold, silver, and precious stones filled the temple. Gold and pearls and precious stones flowed from the Garden of Eden. And interestingly, gold and onyx were in the temple, the same elements mentioned in Genesis 2. Both the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon constantly remind us of the garden, but they also remind us of creation itself. The tabernacle was built in seven distinct stages. The Temple of Solomon was built in seven years, and it was dedicated in the seventh month. God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, and then he rested, and Moses rested after he built the tabernacle. And once the Temple of Solomon was built, God found rest. It's not surprising, then, that the psalmist regarded the temple as a microcosm of heaven uh, heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is the reality of the temple. In the Greek, John 1.14 says that Jesus tabernacled among us. He is also the reality of the garden. He is the tree of life, the true vine, and a flowing river. In Christ, God's space and man's space are joined together. He is, as the New Testament declares, the head, or the firstborn over creation, including the new creation. In the temple, God's glory and presence dwelled on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a perfectly cubed room. It grew in size from its dimensions in the tabernacle to its dimensions in the, in the Temple of Solomon. But it still retained its perfect cubed shape. In the temple, Ezekiel saw in his vision the Holy of Holies grew even larger. In the book of Revelation, we are introduced to the New Jerusalem, a colossal-sized perfect cube. In other words, the entire city is the Holy of Holies. God dwells there. The tree of life, the flowing river, and gold and pearls and precious stones all reappear in that city, and the city is a bride. In Revelation 21 and 22, the garden of Genesis 2 has been transformed into a city. The very dwelling place or house of God, the bride of Christ is the house of God. 
And from the beginning, when Jesus first came to the earth in creation, he has been building this house. Interestingly, in Genesis 2.22, we're told that God built, the Hebrew word translated, made a woman out of Adam's side, and the image is clear. The tree of life appears in the midst of the garden, and men and women are invited to eat from the tree and live, and the reality of the tree, of course, is Jesus himself. The word, words of the New Testament remind us that he who feeds on me will live because of me. John 6, 57. The New Jerusalem is a magnificent symbol of the glorious church, the bride of the Lamb. And this dwelling place is pictured by Eve from whom God, whom God built from Adam's side. She is the new creation. In Christ, the garden of God which is the temple of God, will fill the entire cosmos. Together with our head, we, the body of Christ, are the real temple of God, which God is seeking to enlarge to the entire creation. Ephesians 2, 19-22, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. N.T. Wright wraps it up nicely saying, I have already hinted strongly enough, I think, that Jesus saw his own work, his own public career, his own very person as the reality to which the temple, Sabbath, and creation were pointing. So the first advent, the first coming of Jesus to the earth, was to get the ball rolling, so to speak. Bethlehem was not an afterthought. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I know that was a lot to take in. But I'm trying to give this this flyover very quickly that that the whole story, this is everything. Remember, let's come back to the beginning. He created it all. It was all created for him. Either that's true or it's false. We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. We believe his word. We've committed ourselves to that. We understand this to be the truth. Now, we should frame everything else. That affects how we have our families, how we raise our kids how we view politics, how we view our jobs, our callings, our labors, our loves, our feasting, our sorrows, our trials. Everything in our life is interpreted then in light of this truth. What's the alternative? What does the world tell us? I'll remind you what it tells you. This doesn't mean a dead gum thing. You don't mean anything. You came from nothing and you're going to nothing. Your work doesn't mean anything. Your family doesn't mean anything. Oh, wait a minute. I know people who are not believers who love that. Yeah, I know that. I know that because they're creating the image of God. And they can't escape that truth. But if what they say is true, that the universe just 
is the result of a big explosion, and we don't know why or where or when, and it's going to end up in a great collapse. And all of this will have meant absolutely nothing, worse than nothing. I'm thankful for inconsistency. I'm thankful that there are people who say they believe that and don't live like that. Jesus created all of this for himself, including you. He is the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you three in one and one in three. For your infinite wisdom in planning, creating, and sustaining the world, for revealing it to us, to us its purpose and meaning, lest we perish in utter ignorance and darkness. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Teach us, O Lord to deeply perceive and receive these central truths that we might be transformed in our minds and show, uh, and show forth the glory of God for your praise forever and ever. Amen. There was something else that was and is very important that Jesus was doing as he prepared for his first advent to earth. And this concerns you and your place in the grand story. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not an afterthought. In Ephesians 1, we are given this behind-the-scenes look at what he was up to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, put your name in there, in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Soak that in just for a minute. You are without blame. You are without blame before him. That's what Jesus did for you. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According, why did he do this? According to the good pleasure of his will. He did it because he wanted to. To the praise of the glory of his grace. I think we all want to earn our salvation. We want to be able to commend ourselves to God and say, see what a good boy I am? See what a good girl I am? Nope. He knows you're not. He did this to the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace. 
his ill-deserved favor to you. Because he wanted to. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, Jesus, we have redemption. That is, we were bought out of slavery through his blood. He purchased us. And you know what he did with your sins? He forgave them. All of them. According to the riches of his, there's that word again, grace. Which he made to abound toward us. Put your name in there. In all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In other words, he did all the saving. He did it all. You didn't do any of it. I didn't do any of it. I didn't contribute not one speck. It was all his grace... It was all his ill-deserved favor in Christ. And guess who gets all the praise? Not me and him. We didn't partner. He just saved me. And he saved you. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's the behind the scenes look of what's been going on and what is going on and why we're coming to this table. He had you in mind. It was for you that he endured the cross. You were the object of his eternal love. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Thank you for speaking so clearly and loud and for revealing yourself to us. Indeed, you are faithful, though we are not. You spoke to us in our weakness, and now the joy of the Lord is our strength, for we now rely upon your great power. We are comforted by the fact that there are no promises made by you that will not be performed. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Your word is unalterable, and your power invincible. In in this truth, we find our hope, our assurance, and our strength. You promised a Savior, and that Savior came. By your purpose and power, you sent your Son into the world. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By your power you made us, by your power you redeemed us, you gave us new hearts, and by your power you shall raise us from the dead, 
where we will see our Lord in all his majestic glory and live and reign with him forever. Bless now this Lord's Day for rest and fellowship and feasting and delight. Bless our meal and our conversation, and we thank you for being with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen.